Orange and Blue 760. You're in the Broncos Audio Zone for August 21st, 2018. I'm Andrew Mason. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started today with one of the members of the Hall of Fame Contributors Committee. Clark Judge, a longtime NFL reporter, will be in the Contributors Room Thursday. He works for Talk of Fame Network and joined Chad Andrus and Matt McChesney with some optimistic words about Pat Bowen's candidacy to become one of two Hall of Fame finalists from the Contributors Pool for 2019. Pleased to now welcome in from the Talk of Fame Network, a Hall of Fame voter, Clark Judge. So, Clark, you just, just heard John Elway there. Just go ahead and put Mr. B's bust in right next to his, so you're going to take care of that for us, right? Well, I'm going to be one of five people in that room, but I'd be shocked and surprised if John doesn't get his wish. I don't know if it's, his bus is going to go right next to uh, his, but um, this week we have two contributors we're going to vote on, and we're going to nominate, and Pat's been uh, a very close finisher the past two years, and I've said before on this program that uh, I think he's the virtual lock um now that doesn't mean it couldn't you know something couldn't happen out of the blue but i i look at that room i know who's in that room and i think pat boland's got the votes and my only question who is who's going to be the second uh contributor i think pat boland will be elected um and he should be and um and i think it'll be a very big day for denver and the broncos and john elway well that's awesome that's definitely what we want to hear here on orange blue 760 um Mr. B is – I don't think you can write the history of this league without putting him, you know, in one of the opening paragraphs, in my opinion. So I, I played here, and he was an amazing owner for many different reasons. But, you know, I'm an undrafted guy, the bottom of the roster cat, and he knows where you're from and knows your name and really cares. And it goes a long way when you're building a franchise. My question to you is this. When, when you look at a guy like Mr. Bolin and everything he's done, when you're talking about future owners, like young owners in this league, the guys that just bought the Panthers and whatnot, how can they get to a level where 30 years from now they're talking about getting inducted? Because the NFL now, it's kind of its own monster, and some of these original owners or some of these uh, older owners kind of help build the league as we see it now. So what do you think those guys will need to do to be revered like this? Well, first of all, you have to construct your franchise so that you have success and sustained success. Um, you look at the two owners who are in there. One is Eddie DeBartolo, uh, whom I covered in San Francisco, uh, very much like what you're talking about with Pat Bowen, knew every player. Um, the players loved him. They all stood up for him um, and was beloved in that area and in the state of California. But he had sustained success. Um, but the second is having an impact on the league, and that's where Jerry Jones comes in, who is a second owner named as a contributor. He's had success, but not sustained success. He's had some success with the Cowboys um, early when they won those three Super Bowls, uh, two with Jimmy, but not since then have they really had great success, but he's had a huge impact on the league. And then you look at Pat Bowen, he checks both those boxes. He's had sustained success, um, and he's had an impact on the league through his participation in vast numbers of committees, especially the broadcast committee and what he did in 93 uh, with the broadcast deal when the league was going to give give backs. And, and he and Jerry Jones said, uh, not so fast. We want to get a better deal, not give money back. And as Jerry said, um, you know, he was the brains, I was the brawn, but they got it done. It was creative thinking and he got NBC involved and um, then he got the Sunday night football package involved and he was involved in the 2006 labor negotiations. Uh, had something to do with the um, 
uh, franchise tag and um, NFL Europe. I mean, he, he's been all over the map. And uh, I think when you look at the contributions league-wide, that makes as much of an impact to me as the wins and losses. Because you can say wins and losses, I mean, those are coaches. Those are quarterbacks. How much do I give the owner for that? And, and he's got to set up a framework that makes that possible. Uh, he hires the GM who hires the head coach. You better hire a good one. I mean, in New England, they did. They hired Bill Belichick. So Robert Kraft gets success, gets um, uh, credit for some of that success. But, you know, Brady and, and Belichick are winning those games, but Kraft has made that framework so possible by the way he constructed um, the, the Patriots and also, you know, when he, he kept them there, he bought a new, uh, built a new uh, stadium. You look, that's gone on in Denver, but again, as I said, um, Kraft has a, has had an impact league-wide, but so has Pat Bolin. I mean, Pat Bolin did a, a number of things that maybe people today have forgotten or taken for granted, but as I said, with the TV broadcast committee, um, he he nearly doubled the TV revenues. He and uh, Jerry Jones, with what the league was able to do then, put a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets, including the players, and um, and made it a, a global phenomenon. And I think when you look at all of those things, as I said, checking all those boxes, you say, boy, um, why hasn't he been in sooner? Uh, and that's why I think, as I said, um, I don't want to get too carried away here because there are four other votes in that that room. But I, I'm fairly certain that Pat Bowen's going to be one of the two people coming out on Thursday when we have our vote. Pro Football Hall of Fame, a voter, Clark Judge from the Talk of Fame Network. It, it's an interesting discussion, Clark, because what I hear a lot of what you're saying from the ownership standpoint is there are the owners who really move the league forward on a financial level and who help the mm-hmm. o- other owners in the league make a lot of money. And then from a fan standpoint, particularly fans here in Denver, who have seen the culture of the Broncos and the winning culture of the Broncos, fans look at the Hall of Fame and they go, Pat Boland's teams, Pat Boland's organization has been much more stable and uh, much had a, a much better winning culture than, say, Jerry Jones Cowboys over the last 15 or 20 years, and they were frustrated a year ago. So when, when voters look at this contributor element, how much of it is – the financial decisions that are helped made to progress and move the league forward, and how much of it is the actual culture they create for their organization and their teams? Well, I think it's both. That's what I was trying to say. I mean, um, and, and, you know, it's not just making money for the owners. It's, it's the entire league. I mean, the, the players, the, uh, um, the money that's passed down to people working in concessions, whatever, people you employ. I mean, as a league grows, you're trying to grow this league. And I think what Jerry Jones did, I remember very very well in the 1990s when he came along and was uh, winning Super Bowls and now it's in San Francisco and he was doing things very differently and he was considered a maverick he was doing things against the grain the NFL said we should do this 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 and he said no I'm 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 doing it a different way and suddenly they took a look at him and went whoa I mean now he's doing it a different way he's making a ton of money down there and he's got a different perspective and all of a sudden the Mavericks became the leader of the pack and Jerry Jones is a guy that they turned to um, now that I mean Pat's got um, the Alzheimer's and he's not as he's not active uh, in his ownership but he's one of those guys they turn to for direction so is Robert Kraft is another guy but he gave them a completely different look and suddenly he was able to help them grow the league but that's what I'm saying about Pat I mean when he came along in, in uh, and I, I know it was in the 80s, but in the, in the 1990s when they were doing those TV contracts, he had a different way of looking at things. I mean, they could have said, yeah, we're going to uh, do the give backs here because it doesn't seem to be going our direction. 
he and Jerry Jones were the ones that said, wait, 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 no, we're not. No, no, we're not. We're going to look at this a different way. We're going to come up with a different construct here. We're going to get people uh, involved who aren't involved. And suddenly, you know, you've got NBC and Fox are in there and, and, uh, and they're making a lot more money than they did. I and mean, a lot more people are seeing the game on TV than they did. Um, you know, I grew up in a time probably before both you guys when, you know, there's one Sunday afternoon game and, and maybe you're lucky to get a second one. I can see them everywhere. And the NFL Network, Pat was involved with the NFL Network. So um, I, I can't compare him to, to Jerry Jones, but um, I, I think they're both on the same track. Um, and, and you're right about Pat Bowen had sustained success. Now, a lot of that success is due to your general manager, John Elway. You have John Elway as your quarterback. You're, you're going to have success. And Edgar Kaiser brought him in there. Um, and, and yet – he stayed there. They kept him happy. He was made GM. You've had sustained um, success that John Oway brings in Peyton Manning and, and Pat Bowen's there for that. So all those things, to me, just point in one direction. You go, this guy, he's doing a lot of things right. He's doing an awful lot of things right. And it's not just with his teams on the field and the way he set up this organization. It's what he's done for the league, league-wide. He, he's had enormous uh, impact on the uh, NFL community, and I think that's going to resonate with voters, and it has. I mean, honestly, a couple of years ago, I thought Bobby Bethard was going to be the guy, and it turns out um, it was uh, Jones and Tagliabue, but I know Bolin was ahead of Bethard, which sort of surprised me because I knew where Bethard stood in, in the queue, and suddenly Pat came out of nowhere, but I understand why he did. I mean, I understand it because of his impact. Now, there are people who say, wait a minute, it's a contributor category. shouldn't be an owner's category, and of the first Five guys we put in, um, two of them were owners, and that's Eddie DeBartolo and Jerry Jones. And, and uh, actually, of the first four guys we put in, two were owners. And, and so last year, you knew because Jerry went in the year before, it probably wasn't going to be an owner, whether it was Pat Bolin, Robert Kraft, um, it, it, Bud Adams. It wasn't going to be an owner because um, there were there were some people, and I'm not saying within the committee, but – People on the outside were saying this should be a contributors committee, not an owners committee uh, category. And um, so Bobby got what he, I thought, rightfully deserved. Now you got two more people, and you say, well, geez, Pat Bowen's been in the queue here for three years. He's next man up, and that's why I think uh, he will be one of the two. Um, and it, it's a uh, it's a short list. We have ten people who are looking at, but I think it'll be a fairly quick discussion because um, I think that there's some clear cut favorites with. Pat at or near the head of that list. Okay, Clark, just uh, before we let you go, real quick here, we got to get to a break, but Champ Bailey did say this week he is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Your thoughts? He's in the discussion, um, but I will tell you this. We, we've got other guys who are waiting. I mean, he's getting the Hall of Fame, guys. If he doesn't get in first ballot, he's probably going to get in second ballot. Honestly, I'm one of those who says, I don't care. You know, First ballot, second ballot, you're a Hall of Famer. The last guy in his med school grad class, well, what do they call him? They call him Doc. They don't ask him, what, you know, you, you graduate the top of your class, but there's a doctor. Uh, Champ Bailey will get in, but uh, you've got Ty Law there, some offensive linemen. I think he's got a 50-50 chance with Gonzalez and, and uh, Reed. Those two guys I do think are making a first ballot. Could Champ do it? Yeah, we had three first ballot Hall of Famers this year. I think he could be that guy. But I think because of Ty Law and some of those people were in the queue waiting, it puts him on the fence. I'd say his chances are 50-50. But if he doesn't make it this year, he'll make it in 2020. How about Steve Atwater? <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on I him. mean, it's I really – it's cra- I'm, I'm starting to get pretty angry about this. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, well, he and Leroy Butler, first-team all-decade choices. And, and they can't get any momentum. They can't, nothing. I don't get it. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I – listen, I covered the Chargers back in the 90s. Uh, I saw Steve Atwater a lot in the 80s. I covered um, the, the Chargers. And I saw Steve Atwater a ton of times 
He was, as I said, first team all decade. How can he not be in the discussion? We've only had him once as a finalist. And Leroy Butler was first team all decade. He, he was a, a semifinalist last year for the first time, a semifinalist. That's the top 25 guys. He hasn't even gotten to the room. So that's a frustrating thing for me, and yet we can't wait to put some of these other guys in, rushing them in. And that's the frustrating part, guys, because if you start losing momentum, people just forget about you. And it's sad. I think it's really sad. Yeah, Steve Atwater, absolutely deserving. Clark, we appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Next up, Chad and Matt talk to Shelby Harris after practice. Harris, of course, has been one of the Broncos' strongest players in their two preseason games. Coming off the practice field now, the man we promised you a little while ago on the defensive line, Shelby Harris, joining us post-practice today. Shelby, how was the workout? Man, it was good. It was real good. Perfect weather, you know, nice, nice little overcast. I really can't complain. And, uh, you know, just moving along. It, 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 perfect, perfect football conditions right here. Hey, Shelby, last year you guys, your last road trip was D.C., right? If I remember correctly, uh, that was Christmas, uh-huh. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I dig the fact that you guys have your first road game where your last game was last year. You know, it, it wasn't a great outcome that day. Everybody knows it. Do you find that as kind of an advantage now going back to the place where you guys ended the road uh, woes last year, a chance to right that wrong? Well, yeah, kind of. Also, you got to look at it like this. Uh, Alex Smith in Kansas City, they beat us twice last year. Amen to that, and too. So, Good point. And, and so – at the end of the day, it's one against a familiar foe, a familiar quarterback, and then at the place where we didn't get the outcome that we wanted to last year, and and so it, it is. A, it's a good test, and it's a, it's a, it's something that everyone I feel like on the team is looking forward to going back out there and trying to right some wrongs from last year. When you look at this Friday game and the third preseason game, it's technically or it's usually called the dress rehearsal. What does that mean? For the defensive line, how is it different from the first two preseason games going into the third one? Well, I guess normally the, start, the starters will play a little a little longer, but we rotate anyway. We have a we have a great rotation, I feel like so. This game is going to be the same for us as any other game. Like we we want everyone to be out there as fresh as possible, so we're going to be out there rotating and just making sure that everyone is in a position to make plays. Uh, Shelby, what what you did last year, being second on the team in sacks and always bringing it every week, I I, I thought it was awesome, man. You were, you thank know, from you, the first you. preseason game to the last game of the season, you were bringing it. And I don't think you were in a position, uh, that, you know, in the past before you got to Denver, where you maybe you didn't feel like the team was all the way behind you. But I, I've been beating the drum here on Orange and Blue Seven Sixty for these for the front office to start negotiating with 96 immediately <laughs> uh, to try and keep you here in Denver before someone else uh, pays you a little bit more and we've got to play against you. So, ha- first of all, have you started talking to him at all? And wouldn't you like to stay here in Denver? I, 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 I leave all that stuff up to my agent, and I just don't even worry about <laughs> – I don't even worry. I don't even worry about. Um, I was trying contract. to get his ass too. He wasn't going to talk. I know you tried to get. You tried <laughs> to get me right there. I know you did. You tried. You tried. Hey, that was a good attempt. That was I a was real good attempt. So hard. I was like trying to alley oop it. And, <laughs> nah, I ain't taking. Oh uh, yeah, you tried to alley oop and it got blocked. But yeah. <laughs> I'm saying no. But uh, no, I just have my agent to do with all this stuff. But of course, I want to stay here. I love it here. This is truly the first place where I've ever been where I feel like I've been. I'm, I'm appreciated and that. And and it's it's nothing that. 
well, can never replace that. And I definitely would love to stay here, but you know, at the end of the day, it's the business, and the, uh, the Broncos are going to do what the Broncos need to do. And if, if I have no clue if that includes me or whoever, but at the end of the day, I'm going to put my best stuff on film to make my case. Amen. So, so that's and that's all I can do. So at the end of the day, I got to just focus on the things that I can control. Chad Andrews with Matt McChesney along with Shelby Harris here post-practice. Shelby, um, tell me the frustration level from you, from the veteran D-line guys, the linebacking core, everyone on the defense. Is it uh, as high as the fans when we look at these new rules, particularly in your instance, (laughs) if you drive a quarterback into the ground that it's going to cost you 15 yards and money? No one land on anyone. Uh, I thought we were playing football. Yeah, <laughs> be, we all like, did. You know I mean? Me too. Like I, I, but you know, at the end of the day, you pay those guys a hundred million dollars. They're going to do whatever they can to protect their investment. At the end of the day, but I, it's, I think it's just it's gotten ridiculous. Like watching that, uh, watching that, uh, that penalty from the the Vikings game last week. That was like, the worst when he landed one. on the landed on the side of him and, and got a penalty. It's it just like I understand what they're trying to do somewhat, as in they, you can try to say it's for safety. But now we're now I feel like you're getting to a point where the game of football is kind of changing, because it's you can't you can't land on the quarterback. And they say I understand you want to say oh you can't lower your head and hit anyone, but your shoulder your head is connected to your shoulders, and they want you to hit you, hit people with your shoulders. Well, you're gonna to have to duck your head sometimes. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's football. And but like and if you played football, you know sometimes these rules don't make a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, they are trying to make the game safer. But it's – I feel like sometimes in the effort to make things safer, you actually can make it a little more dangerous because now people are going to be thinking about, oh, how am I going to hit, how am I going to hit, and then you're going to put yourself in a bad position. I agree. The and more you think and the slower you go, the worse things go, in my opinion, on the field. So, so let me ask you this then, Shelby. Um, why is it, in your opinion – why are they more concerned with skill athletes hitting each other and people hitting quarterbacks? But if I play center and you play nose tackle in a game against each other and we play 80 snaps, we are literally going to hit heads 80 times, if not more. So what? See, what why is there no consistency? Question. That's been our question, too. Because the biggest thing is think of a cut block. Like think of think of an offensive lineman cutting the defensive lineman. That's leading, leading with your they're head. They're leading with their head every time. But that's but that's not a penalty though. You know what I mean? But there's then, no consistency. You, it drives me nuts. You try exactly it's like, and that's that's what I think is frustrating players is the fact that you, you're picking and choosing who is protected and who's not protected. Because let's say if I'm on the ball and let's say I trip and then the offensive lineman jumps on me, that's not a penalty. But if I fall on the quarterback, it's a penalty. Man, it's I, I, no. I feel for you guys, man. I was saying earlier that hopefully uh, John and Joe Ellis and Matt Russell and Mr. B can all sit down and go, hey, can we just pay the fines for everybody so our guys can actually play football this year? But, like, you even notice, like, in the preseason, those penalties turn into score. Every time. You know, it'd, be, it'd be third down. and you Scoring's get, going to go and through the, the roof, the thing, bro. It's, not, it's a 15-yard penalty. Automatic for that. If you, anytime in any series, you can look at any of the stats, you get a 15 yard penalty. If they're scoring. More likely, you're going to score at the, yeah. end, at the end of it. 
And, so, and, and look, you're, you're taking away a negative play too, a TFL or a sack or like a, a turnover on a big hit because he dropped the ball. You're taking away a positive play and you're, and you're saying to the defense, you're wrong for being physical when all they preach is being physical. Exactly. Oh, my God. Running back. What are you look supposed to backs. do? <laughs> running backs drop their – hey, look, look, like third and third and one or on the goal line. What does the running back do? Every they time drop drops his head. head. Yep. Every time. But Shall I don't be. see a penalty on that one. Next, from Crockett and Stout, Ray Crockett and Mark Stout talk to former Broncos and Washington running back Clinton Portis. All right, let's go to the hotline. Clinton Portis joins Crockett and Stout here on Orange and Blue 760. CP, how have you been? I'm good, man. How are you all? Good. Clinton, welcome to the crib. Ray Crockett here, man. It's good to hear your voice sounding good, man. It's good to hear you back in Bronco country as well. How you feeling about that? <laughs> I'm good, man. I wish I was back out there to visit. Uh, it was great to me. You know, Denver was always great. And, uh, you know, things happen. You move on in life. But I'll always have a special place in my heart for Denver, man. Hey, what was it like when you got drafted here out of the U? Had you uh, Did you know much about Denver? Man, I knew nothing about Denver. Uh, besides playing uh, Pro-Am on, on Nintendo, and you got to drive through. Uh, Denver on the game. I know the mountains out there. Uh, so coming out, so coming out, especially from Miami. You know, I think uh, the moment I I never even seen myself get drafted when I was uh, talking to Coach Shanahan and realized where I was going. You know, it was like, damn, I'm going way to Denver. But it was great, man. Everything from from the moment I landed uh, in Denver. You know, just the, my teammates, the the uh, crowd, the fans, and Vesco Field. Uh, the organization, everything was lovely. You know, it was never a, a dull day or a dull moment. You know, going in that locker room, having the opportunity to play with the legends that I played with and, and Rod Smith and Eddie Mack, Shannon Sharp, uh, Al Wilson, Mobes. You know, those guys were, were spectacular for me in my career. You know, you don't get the opportunity to tell them or, or talk to them, but at the time, the way they protected uh, their teammates, the way they protected me, it was appreciative because all of a sudden when I had to move on and I had to become that guy that uh, younger guys looked up to or guys looked up to, period, where I had to protect them. I learned from I learned from some great guys. Man, I, I just remember your rookie year. Of course, I had just left Denver and you came to uh, Denver and I was in Kansas City and you gave us the business. And I was like, man, Denver is going to have a running back for years to come. Then, oh, three, you go to the Pro Bowl and then the business of the NFL happens. How difficult is that? And, and what did you think? Did you have any any idea? Like, was there anything in the background that that maybe had anything to do with it, or did it catch you by surprise? Like it caught myself. It totally caught me by surprise. But just to go back to that rookie year, you know, uh, playing against you guys in, in Kansas City, having Priest Holmes on the opposite sideline, and later Larry Johnson. I mean, it was spectacular. You're, you're going up against Priest Holmes and. Uh, Ladanian and uh, who was in uh, Charlie Garner was in Oakland. So week in, week out, twice a year, you know, I got to face some of the better backs in the NFL. So for me, it was just here's my opportunity to make a statement. You know, it was like competing against those guys, not wanting them to outperform me, knowing whichever back came out with the better day was probably going to get the win. Man, that was incredible too, and I and I, I like I said, I just remember you being quick as a cat, and I, you know, I saw you at the U because you know the U was really, really huge when you came out, and I was thinking to myself, man, we had Priest. 
I was like, there's no way we'll get her. And then all of a sudden I hear different. I'm like, really, man? <laughs> but you know what? It's crazy. Y'all had preacher. Y'all went out and drafted Larry Johnson in the first round. So, um, you know, when you look at things, I walked out of my Denver meeting. I never thought I was going to the Broncos. I remember uh, being in Indy and, and uh, Bobby T wanted to sit down and have a conversation. Uh, and it was like late night. It was 10-something at night. I'm telling Bobby T, man, like, why are you wasting my time? Y'all got 3,000-yard backs on y'all roster. You had T.D., Mike Anderson, and Orlando Gear. Y'all not drafting me. I'm tired. I'm sleepy. So to end up coming to Denver after that conversation and then Bobby T being uh, such a great coach he was, you know, playing with Coach Shanahan in that system, like I said, it's all great members of, of Denver. So, Clint. Thinking back to that, now that you just mentioned that, because uh, you may not have known it as as a rookie and as a young guy coming out, but me as a veteran, I know how those meetings stick in those coaches' mind. Do you think that meeting may have had anything with you being traded in 03? No, nah, because I think I put in too much work. You know, I think my trade happened, um, honestly, after my, after my rookie year, uh, I thought I had outperformed my contract. We went in and talked to Coach Shanahan about, redoing my deal and he ended that conversation so quick he said uh he said Clint I can give you I could give you three to five million dollars right now and you're going to come back in here next year and tell me you outplayed that so what's the point why not wait you could be the first back to get 20 million dollars uh as a signing bonus I got up shook his hand and totally understood like it was no I'm in a contract dispute anything and all of a sudden after my second year Hey, Coach Shanahan told me I could get $20 million. Now it's time to actually those 20 million. I had switched over uh, and got a powerhouse representation in Drew Rosenhaus, and we went back in to talk. Actually, we didn't even go in to talk. I never even got a chance to negotiate uh, because I wasn't thinking anything of it. If you go back to 03, how it happened was I was doing an interview with, um, at the time, a beat writer, a local beat writer from Denver, and I'm sitting down, and he's like, oh, you're here representing the franchise. You're the only Bronco here. You know, are you going to hold out? What's this? What's that? You know, I'm just having a conversation. I never said I wanted out. And all of a sudden, 15 minutes after, it was like breaking news, Portis wants out of Denver. And we all sent to the bar, like, who is Portis? Like, what Portis want out of Denver? Everybody looking at me. I'm looking around. Like, I never said that. But. The guy that I spoke to was Adam Schefter, and I guess he had a, a, a great relationship with Coach Shanahan, and I guess he went back and reported. They felt like I wanted out. They gave me the opportunity. They actually were giving me the opportunity to call my bluff and say, well, there's no teams willing to pay this amount of money for a running back. That's how the entire trade went down. Like People feel like it was a disgruntle or anything. The trade went down off of bluff. Like, okay, well, you can see – because they kind of knew there wasn't a lot of teams that I would go to just due to all of those teams passing me over. And the one team that I didn't feel like passing me over was the Washington Redskins. They didn't, they traded their first-round pick that year. So that was the one team I wasn't beefing with in the NFL. Everybody else, you had an opportunity to pick me. So I wanted to make sure I torched you when we played. So for two, two or three years, probably my first four years in the NFL, I was just playing as a madman, like, uh, anybody that I was facing that was new, I wanted that organization to remember, like, passing me over and regret passing me over. 
Interesting stuff. I should tell Broncos country that Adam Schefter, because everybody sees Adam now, as you know, Clinton, on ESPN, he was the beat writer. Yes. And he also wrote a book about Mike Shanahan. So they, with Mike Shanahan. With Mike. So they were tight. So this all kind of makes sense. And, you know, I did look at that 2002 draft. You were picked in the second round by the Broncos, but I think there were like five or six other running backs picked before you that that didn't really light it up, if I remember right. Correct? Well, there were three other backs, Deshaun Foster, uh, Deshaun Foster out of UCLA, William Green out of Boston College, and T.J. Duckett uh, from Michigan State. And, you know, I think when you look back, those three guys combined, I, I think I played more games, had more touchdowns and more yards than all three of those guys combined over a career. So, you know, for all the experts and all the guys who said I was too small and my hands weren't good enough and I was only be a third down back, Hey, to this day, I feel like kiss my. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Clinton, let me tell you, man, I, I, I'm gonna say this, Clinton, because when you what you just said lit a fire under me. Because pr- I promise you, we all remember that. I remember there was five corners picked before me in my draft, and only Deion Sanders played a number of years. I did won Super Bowls, got more picks or anything. So I felt the same way. So I look, I concur, young man. I concur. <laughs> So headed to Washington, (laughs) once you get to Washington, what was on your mind at that point? Because, like I said, you just went to a Pro Bowl with Denver Broncos. Probably thought you was going to be here for a while. And then all that stuff happened that we, you know, we understand that's the business. And and sometimes that's just the bull of the business. But now you're in Washington. What's your mindset at that point? Well, I mean, once you realize the business, even at that point, I didn't realize the business because it was kind of like, I felt like I had arrived, like, oh, man, now I'm going to be the leader of a team. I'm not playing behind all these guys. I took two years to learn, and and now I'm going to be the face of a franchise. So when I got to D.C., I'm thinking every organization is ran like Mr. Bowling ran the Denver Broncos, and I was in for a shot. Like, I went from I went from probably one of the better organizations in the NFL at the time uh, a couple years removed from the Super Bowl to an organization that really had no uh, no structure in place. Like, Coach Gibbs came and changed everything, but coming off of Coach Spurrier, they were, that was like the wild, wild west. Like, I had <laughs> never been in an organization like you, everything was available. Like, you know, you come in contact with everyone you, you work with. In, in Denver, you don't see anybody besides your teammates and coaches, you know? Right. And the Redskins organization was you got – you come in contact with everyone. You know, the media sitting there as soon as you walk in. So if I walk in and I'm talking to you, Ray, and one of them hear our conversation, hey, I guess it's free game, you know? So um, it was totally different. But it was a great adjustment. I, I think having the opportunity to play for Coach Gibbs after playing for Coach Shanahan, and I thought Coach Shanahan was probably – the the genius of all geniuses when it came to coaching. And all of a sudden, you go play for Coach Gibbs, who's such a legendary individual, not just on the field, but off the field, the way he carries himself, uh, the way, you know, everything that he believes in, uh, the success that he's had, and how humble he was from that. So when you play for a guy like Coach Gibbs, it's like, man, I could run through a brick wall. At least that's how you feel because you want to make that sacrifice for him, knowing that he's going he's gonna to be honest. He's up front. He's a straight shooter. So the conversation, he, hey, Clint, 
I need you to do this. I don't have anyone else to do it. So I'm I'm kind of banking on you to run through this brick wall. And all of a sudden, after a couple times of running into the brick wall, you start to say, man, this brick wall about to crack, and I can I can make it through. So he, he made you believe. So that was the difference. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I get my great teammate is Sean T. in, in Santana, and, you know, you think about um, – about Big Chris, uh, Chris Samuels, and, and Chris Cooley, you know, guys that I still have great friendships with. I, I get to team up with all these guys, and we, like, at the bottom of the barrel, trying to accomplish the, the unaccomplishable. And that fight, you know, just that will having those guys say, you know what, we got to go to war, and we undermanned, but we still got to do it. And, you know, you think of Marcus Washington, Fred Smoot, and, you know, guys who made that locker room so enjoyable and fun, Robert Royal, uh, those guys, everybody that you had. You know, Denver Broncos in, in, in Bronco country, they wouldn't even know who those guys were. But for our locker room, that was our Shannon Sharp. That was our Keith Burns. Those were the guys that kept everything together and made it live and fun. So having the teammates and having the opportunity to play with guys I went to college with, was spectacular, and I think you look at some of the runs we had, we were a game away. You know, both times we lost to Seattle, and, and then the tragedy strike. So it was it. I as in Denver, I feel like I was a kid. I was a kid that was running wild and just determined to fight everybody and do everything and be, you know, be a household name. And all of a sudden, when I got to Denver. I mean, when I got to D.C., I think I became a man. You know, I think I became uh, more understanding of the situation. I think more pressure was placed on me. And the more that I, I answered my doubters and haters, you start to lose. Like, what am I? I've answered every question that you could have possibly said about me over a four-year period. It's nothing that you could possibly say that I can't do because I've proven to you I can do everything. And I did it with different offensive coordinators. I did it with different teammates. Like, I did it as a focal point. So, you know, I think around that age was you start to realize the business and the enjoyment of the game begins to change. So there's two big trades that happened in Denver. Of course, Chris Hidden, John Elway, and then Champ Bailey and Clint Portis. And we had Clinton on, and, you know, we had a clear sitting about the Elway trade. Did you and Champ ever get to talk? Because I know you guys got to go to a Pro Bowl together when you got to uh, Washington. Did you guys ever talk about this trade, or or how big of, was the talk around Washington about the trade? You know, I think Champ just had made his mark in, in, in D.C. You know, I was a Champ being a fan when he was at UGA, and I, I had seen the success he had in the NFL, so – me getting traded for champ at that time, like my second year in the NFL, I'm getting traded for champ Bailey and a pick. You know what I mean? It was a pick to come along with that. Uh, I felt like it was phenomenal. Like I just got traded for the best cornerback in the NFL at the time. And yeah, I don't know champ. So I've never really kicked it or talked to him. And, you know, I know he felt some kind of way and, and took a jab at it. But for me, man, what I was asked to do in D.C., I don't give a – I don't – I can give two cares about anybody, what they say, what they think. When I got to D.C., you know, the freedom that I had in Denver, the opportunity that I had in Denver to burst on the scene. What I got to D.C. and did, 
I don't care who you put in that situation. To be able to go handle that city, not get in any trouble, keep my nose clean, like me to stay fresh, come out unscathed, like as a human, as a man, never never sacrificing who I was or losing my soul. Like I had a good time. I it was great. I don't think any anyone else could have done that. And it's been proven for all of the change that you see in D.C. All of the big names that come to D.C. and disappear or vanish or, or D.C. just smothers them up. For me to go and, and accomplish what I accomplished over those years that I was on the field barring injury, that was never a year that I wasn't injured, that I didn't go over the 1,200-yard the mark. You know what I mean? Right. Out of nine years – Six years on the field, I got six 1,000-yard seasons. 1,500, 1,200 was, was my benchmark. You know, guys lead the league in rushing at 1,200 yards now. No one else could – I don't think anyone else could have done what I'd done in that situation. So, lastly – Oh, no, no, look, you were the truth. That's no doubt. Yeah. Lastly, you talked about that organization back then being the Wild Wild West. And for whatever reason, Clint, you know like I know, that organization is still being talked about today. Do you think they are turning it around? Or do you keep up with them, or, or do you think that will ever happen? Well, I keep, I really do keep up with them. You know, I, I think uh, having having Mr. Snyder as a, as a great friend, I think the organization is changing. You look at uh, this year's draft, probably was the best draft the Redskins has had in a long time with Doug Williams, Bruce Allen. Uh, you know, being on being on one accord. You look at what they've done the last two years and, and the guys that they're bringing in, I think you have stability. Whereas prior to that, it was change, change, change. It was never any in-house grooming. It was always, you know what, I got to go out and find what's best. And when you pair up what's best, it's often hard. You've seen the Eagles try to do that years ago and pay everybody, and all of a sudden, the Eagles not expected to win a Super Bowl, won a Super Bowl with people who, who enjoyed being around each other, who enjoyed playing with one another, who played for one another. So you have to build your organization like that. When you look at the Redskins, are they, are they close or are they far away? I don't know what other organizations have. So, you know, you look at, you look at uh, who would be a prime example of last year or this year. You know, you look at Seattle. In the dynasty that Seattle could have created, and how great that would have been if Marshawn Lynch scores a touchdown and they run the ball. But the fallout behind that, the organization hasn't gotten back on track since. And all of the stars, everybody all of a sudden are gone, and it's three, four years removed. So when you look at organizations, all of that changed. You have an opportunity to do something special for a short period of time. And once it changed, you can't get that back. You can't – see, I can't go back to the Legion of Boom and, you know, be the most feared place in the NFL or the loudest stadium in the NFL to go into and play and everybody comes in already kind of intimidated, you know. So uh, outside of New England, you don't really have that stability in organizations. You think of the Steelers always been a great organization. They really haven't made any noise throughout the NFL. You, you look at the Ravens who – had their downtime down after winning the Super Bowl. So it's like you win the Super Bowl and everybody else vanishes except the New England Patriots. Well, let me ask you a last thing, Clinton, about We're talking to Clinton Portis. How about Mr. Boland? You brought him up, and we're hoping on Thursday he's going to be a guy that uh, is going to have a shot at getting to the Hall of Fame. What about Mr. Boland and the Broncos? 
I think he definitely should get into the Hall of Fame for what he did in Denver and keeping. I, I thought that was the, probably the best place ever when it came to camaraderie and you know being in different places. You see, you got to be on one accord with the police. You got to be on with like the city have to take to the organization. You can't be hated. Coming to D.C., all of, everyone's not rooting for the Redskins, whereas in Denver, most of the people pulling for the Broncos. You don't want to see guys get in trouble. You want guys to do good. You want guys to be okay. You're not you're not sitting outside of the hot spot trying to arrest and embarrass the organization. So for for Mr. Bowling to have that relationship uh, with with Colorado and Bronco Nation and everything that he's given uh, to that city, it's great. You know, you you think of a uh, you think of a man that puts his money up to go out and, you know, a lot of people look at it as, oh, you got all this money, what are you going to do with it? You still have to invest in the community. You have to invest in the town. You have to invest in the team. For him to do that and, and run an organization that you don't really see a lot of guys get in trouble. And, and they're normally loyal to their players. I know I, I would uh, trade it, but when you look at L, when you, when you look at TD and Rod Smith and Shannon Sharp and a bunch of the guys go back crock, uh, at water. You look at these guys when they come back to that city, it's still love. For me, if I come back to Denver, it's still love. And that says a lot about the organization because if the people don't like you, then they're not going to care for you. You can't go back and, oh, well, you know what? I want to be the voice of the Broncos. You don't have that opportunity. You can't go back and be the GM or run the Broncos. But I think he's so great to the players and in that city, he keeps them around. And, and that's a great thing. Well said. Clinton, we really appreciate the time, man. And like you said, Broncos country loved watching CP run the football here for over 1,500 yards in those uh, those two seasons. Man, great to catch up with you. Enjoy the game on Friday night when the Redskins and the uh, and the Broncos play. Okay, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, baby. Hey, congrats to everything you accomplished, man, and good luck going forward. Appreciate you, Clinton. Hey, Croc, peace out. Appreciate All right, it, baby. Man. There you go. The one, the only. Hey. Bad man. Yep. <laughs> Finally, voice of the Broncos, Dave Logan, joined Columbus and Lindahl. He starts by talking about whether the Broncos will look at the veteran cornerback market. And actually, we are joined by Dave Logan, voice of the Broncos. We welcome him in. Dave, it's Andy and Tyler. Good morning. So tell the truth Tuesday. Does that imply that Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday you are doing what? I'm constantly no, it, lying. It's you know just, that. It's, it's your free out to speak your mind. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the you've had a couple adult beverages and uh, things flow out a little bit more freely. You know what I Got mean, it. Dave? Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, it's, it's the airing of grievances like Seinfeld. So we pull out the Festivus <laughs> poll, Dave, and you're allowed to say whatever you want to us. And never, none of us are allowed to get our feelings hurt. That's Got it. All, Keep right? your finger on the dump button. We're ready. <laughs> Anything you want to say about Andy? Yeah. Now, that, no, now that you know, to tell the truth Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, no, that no, I'll, I'll hold that information for a tad bit later. Yeah, that would uh, that would be the whole show. Um, actually, in all honesty, what was it? It was a Pete Carroll thing. It was. Yep. It, tell the truth Tuesday. Basically, show up, watch the film. You know, he had every day had some sort of cute phrase to, towards it. You know, competition Wednesday, turnover Thursday. Every, every day had some phrase. So tell the truth, Dave, uh, as we steal from Pete Carroll, as we tend to do in this business. As we look back at uh, the game film and everyone's had a chance to digest it, so on and so forth, Vance Joseph basically saying he's comfortable with Tremaine Brock. Um, he's. 
He's intrigued by Isaac Yadam, but he just said there's some growing that needs to be done there. Uh, we'll ask you again now that now that Scandrick's off the market. Do we revisit a Kayvon Webster? I keep getting asked about Kayvon Webster. I know we've asked you about it before. I mean, is this something that, that as we move towards the regular season that needs to be looked into, or do you think they're just going to ride it out the way it is? Well, excuse me, I, th- I think it's something they may eventually have to do. I think it depends on whether my dog is going to bark. Uh, I, I think it depends on whether Kayvon is completely healthy. He's coming off a couple of pretty significant injuries, and the last time that I heard about Kayvon, he was at about 80%. Now, this was this was close to a month ago. So um, you may need – I mean, listen, I, I think Isaac Adams is going to be a good player, but I've said this before on both of the broadcasts. I don't care how good a player you are or where you were drafted. If you get significant playing time at the corner spot or even a nickel corner in the regular season, you are going to get a lot of business. You're going to get a lot of traffic. You're going to get a lot of attention because that's just how – and that, that sort of thing's been going on forever, NFL receivers. And I think back to the mid-'70s and mid-'80s when I played – as veteran receivers, when we went against a team and looked over there and there was an R behind the guy's name, I mean, our eyes eyes lit up. So, Yadam's going to be a good player. I, I think he's, he's going to take a while. So, yeah, they might have to think about going out and getting another veteran body just because of uh, kind of where they are now. Well, and Dave, when you talk about that, I think, and maybe Tyler remembers it too, but I know you called the game. I'll never forget John Elway and Ed McCaffrey going after Sean Springs. That's a first-round pick. They dialed him up in Seattle all day, right? Yeah, I mean, Sean Springs turned out to be a really good player, but that was his rookie season. And Eddie Eddie ran, you know, like three or four double moves, and I don't remember how many catches he had, but I just remember it was a long day for Sean Springs. So, again, that's sort of how the business works in the NFL, and uh, we'll see what they do. I, I think – the fact that we're having this conversation, you know, worries me a little bit about some of the depth at the, at the defensive back spot. I mean, Brendan Langley, who's a third-round pick last year, I'm not saying he's not going to make the team, but I, 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 you would, you'd like to see him sort of surface now. Uh, Yadam is in front of him, which is concerning if you're if you're a Langley fan. But um, I guess we'll just see how the last couple of weeks play out. Dave, the Broncos went ahead and made a big decision to move on from Menelik Watson, who uh, was guaranteed $5.5 million. Um, that's a lot of money to be uh, unemployed. I think there's a lot of people in this world that would collect $5.5 million to get fired. Um, any surprise there that they went ahead and moved on? You know, it's not a surprise that uh, they've not been happy with him. It's a little bit of a surprise that they, they moved on. You know, he's had that peck injury, Tyler, for the entire camp. And he didn't play well at right tackle. They moved him into right guard. But I, I think it clearly shows that they're not afraid to eat some money to sort of, at the very least, make a statement with their guys. I mean, you, you can't, you know, you've got to be able to play. You've got to be able to play in training camp. You can't just assume because you have guaranteed money that you're going to wind up in the 53. It just doesn't work that way. So that was, I won't say it's a message move because it's certainly a costly message move. But I think they just came down to, listen, you know, we have Vance saying that this was more about some of the backup players. You know, I I understand the the position he took, 
But really, if you're paying this guy as much as you're paying him, and he's not even good enough to be a backup player, if if the injury, if they if they weren't upset about the injury and thought he could be a backup player, they would have kept him on the roster. So this was to me about Menelik Watson, and just the Broncos didn't have any faith that he could even fit in a guard when he was healthy, if he got healthy. Dave, your thoughts on the tight end position. Let's talk about a place where I think that we saw some good things the other night. You know, Jeff Hireman shows up, puts some good tape out there. Have you liked what you've seen out of Jake Butt in the games as well? Have you been able to process that? I mean, where do you think we are with the tight ends? How many of those guys, if you had to guess today, do you think they keep, three or four? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, um, you know, you've got Troy Fumagalli, who's the fifth-round draft choice. We haven't seen much of in camp. Uh, Hireman, I thought, looked good on Saturday night. I have liked Jake Budd. I think he's, you know, he's going to be a receiving weapon and a guy that is going to be a, a, a matchup problem again once he gets his feet wet, once he understands sort of how the how the NFL works. But they've got some interesting guys in 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 that mix as well. Matt Lacoste has had a pretty good preseason. I mean, they they can't Austin Trailer. They can't they can't keep all of them, right? I mean, so I think they're just letting this thing sort of play out the last couple of weeks. Um, but I would say right now, I mean, Hireman, it's Hireman's job if he can stay healthy. And that's, that's been the big, big question for him. Dave, one guy that there was a lot of excitement around uh, that he might be able to solve some issues for us on the defensive side of the ball and some of our matchups with tight ends is Suha Cravens. We haven't been able to see him either throughout training camp very much due to that knee injury, which I'm not even quite sure what it is. But, um, you know, Vance Joseph said he would like to see him out there on the field, would like to get an evaluation of him. What are your thoughts on his opportunities to make the team if he can't get healthy? Well, I mean, I don't I – don't... I don't see how you can keep him if he can't get healthy. I mean, how, how do you know what you have? This is a guy that's never played for Denver. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's uh, almost impossible to have him make the, the 53 if he cannot play in any of the preseason action. Now, that said, they were really excited when they got him because he presents a guy that, as we've all talked about, sort of gives them – the ability to do things they have not done very well in the past, and that is in, in the dime in the sub package as a dime linebacker, he can play in the box. He's a big enough safety that he can hold up in the running game, and yet he's a good enough athlete that you can match him on some of the tight ends and backs that we've seen uh, you know, give the Broncos so many problems over the last handful of years. But, again, it gets down to, I mean, how do you cut somebody that is close and keep Sua Cravens if he, if you don't ever see him, even if you're excited with what you have seen, I think you have to see him playing a game. So I, I'm not sure what his status will be coming up for the game Friday night in Washington. It would be great if he uh, were able to play and could get out there. And even if he only played for a bit and you got him on tape where you could evaluate him and say, okay, I know he's not completely healthy, but I see things here I really like, then I think it's going to be much easier for the Broncos to make that decision. Yeah, so Dave, what do they do about the tight end position if Sua Cravens can't get healthy? And, you know, no one's saying he can't. Mike Cliss wrote that he thought that Sue would still be on the roster, but everybody I talked to wants to see him playing again. As, as Tyler said, and I think we've all expressed, you'd like to see him play before you keep him there. Can you do something different scheme-wise then to try to solve this tight end coverage issue? I mean, it feels like it's been a problem going back to 2016. Is it just a matter of finding that guy, maybe that David Bruton Jr. type? that can help you cover the guy? I mean, what, what would you do as the answer there? Well, I mean, the, 
finding those guys, I mean, those guys are unique players. And again, you, you've got to have the physical ability to um, line up in the box. And when I say line up in the box and take on the running game, I mean, offenses are, are not stupid, right? When they see sub packages come in, if they can somehow get to the run and force you to come up and make a tackle, and it's it's a it's a third down opportunity that you know they it's it's a reachable goal then they're gonna they're gonna test you in the run game and so but you also have to have the ability to cover tight ends so those guys we've seen over the last few years those guys are hard to find and you could you can go with the you know the the nickel package where you bring a defensive back in but then you're going to get tested severely in the running game and you, I mean Chris Harris was able to do it but it's not it's not ideal even for Chris just because of his physical stature so. I don't have a good answer for you. Will Park's injury is that that's a setback, obviously, because he's he sort of is the same style of player as Sua Cravens. Cravens, if you look at him, um, I mean, he looks like a really small linebacker. So he's an intriguing guy, and again, I think he's the guy the Broncos would like to see surface. He's just got to find a way to get on the field. Tell the truth, Dave, on Tell the Truth Tuesday. Will you be plopped in front of your TV watching the third episode of Hard Knocks tonight? Uh, I don't know that I'll catch it exactly when it comes on, <laughs> but I ab- I've watched the first two, and uh, it is about the Cleveland Browns, so ab- absolutely. You will not? All right, so what? one more. Tell the truth. Oh, I will be. Tell the truth. Don't you kind of want to punch Greg Williams every now and again? <laughs> yeah, listen. You you can drop it every now and then. Um, I, you know, he's, I, I've got much respect for Greg Williams, but sometimes you talk about playing to the cameras. Uh, you know, and I and I've had I've talked to players that have played for Greg Williams. That act is uh, that that's sort of a consistent act, and it can wear thin, and it wears thin, especially if they're not winning games. So I'll say this. I mean, the Browns have, as we've talked about, have won one game in two seasons. So I imagine they're going to win more than that. They might double their total number of wins this year. Oh! But, uh, yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, Greg Williams, um, I could do without a little bit of him. Yeah. Hot take out of Logan. They there might double their win total. <laughs> it's a hot take Wednesday, Dave. You're, hey, you're listen, jumping ahead. Listen, All right. Listen, we will... listen, listen. I, I'll, I'll give you a hot take. The Browns will win seven. Oh, there you go. Look at this. Oh, you got it, Dave. You got the hot take sounder. You're on the board. Seven. The Browns will be <laughs> seven and nine this year. Well, I, I'm finding myself liking Todd Haley, and it kind of bugs me. Because I, I I, I'm not the same, him, man. So, I, I'm kind anyway. of the same. Dave, thanks for the conversation. We'll talk hey. to you tomorrow. All right, guys. Talk soon. Whoa, seven wins for the Browns. We just had to follow up on that on first and ten at ten. Did you hear uh, Dave? Dave said they got seven wins this year. I'm right there with him. Seven wins. I don't. Th- the Seven. Cleveland Browns will not finish in last place in their division. Ooh, Cincinnati. Even with Hugh Brown as their head coach, or Baltimore. Hugh Jackson's been Hugh eight Jackson. and eight before. Hugh Jackson rather. He went eight and eight before. He could do it, especially if they fire him midseason and turn it over to Todd Haley. Oh, hey now. Todd Haley in the building, waiting, boy. Hey, 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 hey. For all of us, I'm Andrew Mason. Thanks for stepping in to the Broncos Audio Zone. Orange and Blue 760.